Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. On today's episode, we talk to Douglas Yu. As a journalist at Forbes, Douglas has a bird's eye view of the emergent brands within food and beverage. Tune in to hear Douglas's view on plant-based meat products and influencer-led brands. If you're interested in understanding the trends that will define consumer markets in 2023, this episode is for you. Thank you so much for being with us today, Doug. Can you please start by telling our listeners about yourself and your role at Forbes? Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have this opportunity to join Consumer Rundown, and I can't wait to share some of my insights with your listeners. My name is Douglas, and I'm a senior contributor at Forbes. I have been covering exclusive financial news in the consumer products industry from major fundraising announcements to mergers and acquisition for the past four years. I've been a journalist for seven years, going on eight years now, and right. also working as a business manager in a venture capital firm called Sprindell Ventures in Austin, Texas. How did you become a journalist at Forbes, specifically in the CPG space? I went to Emerson College in Boston, and that's where I got my master's in multimedia journalism. Um, so hustling for a year, covering a lot of local news stories from government, policies, arts, and everything in between. I didn't necessarily envision myself to become a food and beverage writer at the time. Yeah. And then this opportunity came up when I moved to Chicago in 2015 and started working for Food Navigator, which is owned by Will & Reed Business Media. And from there, during my three years working for them, I wrote particularly for their two vertical websites. So one is confectionerynews.com, the other is bakeryandsnacks.com, covering mostly industry-related topics from product launches to sustainability around chocolate. And I think because the extensive coverage around large companies that get these particular categories, Forbes approached me towards the end of 2018-ish and say, if I want to join join their team to do my trajectory and I cover more what I'm really good at, which is the financial news aspects, looking at a quarterly earnings results from these large companies, but also how these large companies are increasingly investing in smaller brands, like onboarding them through their own venture arm or through investments, or eventually how that leads to a strategic acquisition. That's really cool. I feel like that would be a fun job. Do you try a lot of your products too? You're mentioning cacao in your old job, but I mean, even now food, bad, there's so much there. That's a, that's a great question. Back in the days where, you know, when there are a lot of samples that were sent directly to my office, but now they're sending me directly these samples to my home. And then my friend oh, nice. roll up these samples. <laughs> From frozen products, from ice cream to chocolate bars to lots of energy drinks, beverages. My fridge is like, looks like a museum of like emerging CPG, <laughs> which is great. I think, you know, every time I get a new product to try, I get very excited as well. Really looking, yeah. reading into the labels. And sometimes I would do research on my own about how this brand is, is founded, right? What strength about this brand, what makes it so attractive, what fellow industry founders and, and people working in industry like respond to this brand and why this brand is selected within this gift box. So that always fascinates me and pushing me to continue, I guess, scout for new stories to write about and sampling up always is a great way to discover these products. What do you consider when you decide what brands or products to cover 
my focus is finance. What type of byline that will catch my attention the most, I would say is acquisition. Deal gets done. I will typically go out and ask for comments from their executives. After the deal is done, how the larger acquirer will help the smaller brand scale moving forward, providing that insights towards peer players, giving them some guidance of what's going to happen like to your brand and this what kind of multiples are you're, you're expecting. So yeah. helping other entrepreneurs equip them with the right knowledge and insights. I think that's what, what gets me very excited. Can you tell us a bit more about your role at Springdale Ventures? My role at Springdale Ventures is business development manager, helping them scout for deals, potential investors, and keep my finger on the pulse of the industry and providing some insight. Over the last eight years, the consumer landscape has dramatically changed. From your perspective, what have been some of the biggest changes that have occurred? That's a great question. I will say there are two major lines that I can touch upon here. One is clean label, the growing trends of clean label, natural, and plant-based yeah. food. But a lot of these jargons and industry language gets very muddy as well in terms of what is natural. If it's an extract, if it's a powder from plants, is that considered natural? Or we have to use the plants as they are. There are trends, reports showing how millennial consumers and Gen Z consumers nowadays are more sustainability and environmentally conscious, proactively reaching out to brands that are doing good to human body. So health overall, coupled with regenerated agriculture and upcycling trends, I think these are some of the buzziest words that continue to attract consumers and investors into the space. That's a really good point about the terms that the industry uses or companies across the industry uses and not having maybe a standard way of evaluating things like natural. Have there been improvements in that area? If a brand says something is natural, is that following certain guidelines? Or is it still as ambiguous as it was before? Conversations are getting heated up in terms of what is considered a clean label. Before, it could be simple in a way that we have a list of pronounceable ingredients, ingredients that are familiar. From a labeling perspective, plant-based is going very strong. We're seeing consumers requesting clear clarification on what these labels are. I want to go back to something that you said a couple of minutes ago, and it's a term I've heard before, but I don't think I'm that familiar with it. What is regenerative farming? Regenerated farming is nothing new. It has been practiced by farmers in Latin America, Africa, Asia for centuries. Put in a dummy's term, when the leaves fall, they will put those fallen leaves into the soil and continue to nourish plants around it to make mm -hmm. sure it's a holistic ecosystem without using any external sources or machinery to create a very healthful, self-relying farming ecosystem. That's a really great explanation what regenerative farming is. It's a really interesting concept. Can you tell us more about it? In July, I had an opportunity to travel to Colombia to witness regenerative agriculture, how climate change really affects the cocoa farmers with, with the CEO and the founder of Good Sam's Foods, Heather Terry. That was her fell experience, seeing how sustainability plays out in front of your eyes. I remember talking to farmers who complain how over the past decades, they're cacao plants have, you know, elevated the altitude where they grow their plants have elevated because of climate change mm -hmm. and their cacao beans are actually more exposed to moist. So they're more vulnerable to, to certain diseases, which is heartbreaking because that will significantly affect productivity of these cacao plants and eventually will affect how chocolate 
industry will grow overall. We have to remember farmers are the cornerstone of our capitalist society. We have brand operators, investors on top, and then we have farmers who are doing the very important work. When we talk about sustainability, it has to go down to the very, very fundamental of our agricultural supply chain. So seeing that played out in front of my eyes was an eye-opening experience. Thank you for sharing that. That must have been a very powerful experience. I want to spend a bit more time on the trends within the plant-based meat market. The market experienced significant growth and excitement, both from consumers and investors over the last few years. But more recently, the growth has slowed. And in the case of Beyond Meat, revenue has declined in 22 versus 21. From your perspective, are we reaching the peak of the number of customers willing to try these products? That's a great question. I think we have to look at the market from different aspects, one from the corporate side and the other one is from the consumer side. On a corporate side, we see larger plant-based meat companies, their sales plateau a little bit. There's a lot of market volatility, especially throughout 2022. But in the meantime, we have to look at this category because it's so popular. It's been talked about so often. So really alluring a lot of younger brands coming into the market to start taking shares from these incumbents. So we see a growing numbers of plant-based meat company, but also comfort foods that are adding plant-based meat to their products, such as pizza. I think the category is getting very much diversified versus back in the days, it was probably like burger patty. It was chicken nuggets, but now there are actually a variety of different types of foods that incorporates plant-based meat in their products. That's number one. Number two, I think definitely some growing consumer skepticism around plant-based meat, whether that brings the same type of value. So that skepticism pushed consumer to consume these products very cautiously. That's a great point, and it's one I completely agree with you on. From my point of view, in the short term, several factors will impact growth. Partly, it's the current economic environment that we're facing and how consumers respond to it. If you look at history, when prices go up, consumers naturally shift to cheaper options. And a lot of times, right now at least, those cheaper options are not plant-based meat products. What do you think about that? I think that's one thing, there's one stigma around healthful, sustainable foods is that they're not affordable and they don't taste great. Whether these products will maintain its own sustainability, whether they're going to continue consumer retention, I think it's another debatable area. That's a really great point. And I think your analysis is straight on. Shifting topics for a bit, looking back on the last 12 months, is there one trend that sticks out in your mind? YouTubers, Mr. Beast or Anna Chamberlain going into CBG and create a brands that resonate with our fan base already. So I see lots of them coming to the space and creating brands that doing a great job targeting their existing consumer base. I think that trend is going very strong and it will probably continue to grow. Let's dive deeper on this topic. It's a trend I've been following for a long time as well. From your perspective, what makes Mr. Beast or Emma Chamberlain so successful as brand creators? As an influencer, they already have an established fan base. So making them very easy to go after consumers that they've already felt resonated with, having a product and then asserting that into their videos or their podcast can get it out there in the consumer touch point very easily. For entrepreneurs who don't necessarily have that resources, it's a very, very difficult journey. So for influencers who have that resources, selling a product seems to be a very natural or organic extension 
of their career. At Springdale Ventures, for example, we invest in Goodles, which is a better for you mac and cheese founded by actress Gal Gadot. It's a really great product. Think about traditional mac and cheese, but with amped up tradition, more protein, more fiber. It's a massive success. So we're extremely proud of the products and the founding team and it has resonate with the consumer so well since it launched on DTC and it went into Target recently. And I remember before the product launched into the market, Gall sort of started teasing her fans on Instagram, say something huge is coming up and then eating mac and cheese on camera when the product launched in the market. So it was massive success. If she can eat that and maintain her figure, <laughs> definitely give that a try. Do you feel like consumers set maybe a lower bar for influencer-led products because of the fact that they feel such a personal connection to the influencer. I sometimes wonder, do we maybe not care as much whether the product itself is as good as if it were a no-brand product? And how do you see that play out? I will put it a very blunt way. I think it's unavoidable. Personal resonance is very important. And when we read market reports that Gen Z consumers are increasingly conscious about certain labels, they want to read into nutrition facts panel. I'm really curious in reality, like how many people actually go to the grocery store and look at those nutrition panels. I'm not a Gen Z, but I, I do read everything. And it started from skincare, actually, as I have eczema. So that's what I had to educate myself on what I need to stay away from. So that's where the reading and the ingredients, learning about that really came in. And then food, I do that now. First thing I do is take it off the shelf. I turn it around. I look at ingredients, nutrition panel, and make my decisions that way. I think FOMO is one thing that plays a significant role in purchasing decisions. That resonates with investors as well. When an elite investor comes in and really rile people up, pushing other investors to join similar rounds. Same with journalists. When I look at a celebrity-backed deal, before they even try the samples, they want to do a story because they know that's a buzzword. So having that instant attention-grabbing effect resonates with consumer space as well. We still have to look at long-term. There's going to be more celebrity-backed brands, but whether they're going to scale well, whether they're going to be successful down the road, I think it still depends a lot on whether they have solid business fundamentals, whether they have a clear path to profitability. Lastly, whether they have the right execution. They need people who have experience executing certain key decisions on which retailer we're going into, what kind of accounts we have to manage or kind of audience we have to target, have a clear vision of what your product is, rather than spreading your products like across the board, launching yeah. a focus in tomorrow or going to Walmart, and it just doesn't make economic sense. It just confuses consumer whether your branding is really, really catering to health-focused consumers or you're just another CPG brand. I think that's a really good point. From what you were saying, it's like consumers are looking to purchase these products for more than just their immediate function, right? It's more than just this is going to satiate me or this product is going to moisturize my skin. There is personal identification aspect of it. There's this entertainment value a little bit too, depending on what it is, how it fits into your lifestyle and values. Those are things that as new brands come into the space, they should think about how to build value in that area. And if you 
are an influencer, you have some of those things built out already. That could be a really advantageous way for you to come in and build yeah. brand. I think that's a really good point and probably not how traditional we've thought about these brands, but going forward, probably how we should think about it more. And even when a startup doesn't necessarily have the resources in getting an influencer on board, it can leverage very creative marketing because when a brand starts out, it's literally a white canvas that you can draw anything on it. And this year, for example, a very noticeable example is Liquid Death, who has seen their valuations over a roof because they're selling water, but they're selling water in a beer can. And that's just like so creative, so innovative. And I remember reading, listening to their founder talk on YouTube on an interview about how they capture consumers' attention. Once a consumer wants to take a picture of it, even they don't consume it or they don't buy it, when they see it on shelf, they've already reached 50%. I think Liquid Death is a very interesting brand. I remember going to a party in LA a few years ago and trying it for the first time. I had read a bit about it, but didn't really try the product just yet. I was very excited to do it because although I knew it was water in a can, there was something very interesting about the branding and about the concept. Before even reading into it, I thought it was a low alcohol product. And little did I know they were selling water myself. <laughs> I was kind of surprised when I, when I tried it. I think they definitely captured my attention as well. Building on that point a little bit, to me, when I think about liquid death, I think part of the appeal is the ability of non-drinkers to fit in a drinking environment. Someone can go to a bar, someone can go to a show and choose not to drink. But to others, it may not be obvious that that person is holding water and not beer. We're seeing this trend around more and more people moving away from alcohol. I think liquid death really fits well into that trend. And as you mentioned, you know, how, how they feel like they, they want to fit in at a party or similar environment is exactly that psychological play. It's not only how this product makes you feel, it's how you are perceived as a person where you're consuming this product in an increasingly digitalized world. I would say marketing should be prioritized ahead of a lot of things. Branding is very important. That psychological, emotional resonance matter more than having a tasty product. Let's look ahead a bit. What trends should consumers be paying attention to going forward? We saw FDA recently give a green light on cultivated meat. It means that cultivated meat, it's safe to eat, at least here in the U.S. now. Over the past two years, at least, we've seen a growing number of brands, manufacturers are laying the groundwork for this type of products, going to B2B accounts, entering restaurant partnership. I'm really curious how consumers will accept this type of concept, whether it's going to be scalable or not. A lot of health-focused foods are not affordable in the first place, but the interviews I've done in the past and people that I talk to, this type of technology can potentially help scale their products. So eventually they will put their price up for with regular meat. So yeah. I'm really curious what the texture is going to be like from a nutrition perspective, whether they're to provide exactly the same nutrition as regular meat as well. I think that's, that's one thing, you know, it's questionable at this point, but if FDA has given approval on this area, I think in the next year or so, we're going to see more cultivated meat players come into the space, but existing players are going to scale their products. That's one area to contradict that a little bit. We'll definitely see like return of comfort food and food made with real function. So functional food is starting to evolve very slowly from body function to mental health focus. So instead of using protein or probiotic, 
a lot of beverage brands starting to add tropics, mental health focused ingredients into it, whether for focus purposes, mental clarity, or simply make you happier. Anything that helps fight anxiety or depression, I think it's getting a lot of recognition in the market now. But there's more research that needs to be done. How much brands can mushroom that we should take every day to actually right. achieve that effects? How much nootropics that we should take to achieve the mental, the psychological effects? I think it's open to a lot of discussion. I'm excited to see in 2023 what kind of new formula, what kind of new product innovation that these brands will come up with. I think you're spot on with that observation. A few weeks ago, we had Will Nitsa from IQ Bar on the podcast, and we talked about this exact trend. He launched IQ Bar a few years ago to focus on brain and body nutrition, and he's been very successful with it. I was very lucky to get to know IQ Bar from the early stage of their brand. I remember back in 2017 when I was writing for Bakery and Snacks. That was one of the first to market that focused on brain health. It starts booming all of a sudden, and then we saw Mosh Bar launching to the market as well about a year ago, and it's gaining massive success as well. So I think that brain health focused products from whether it's baby food category, beverages or snack bars really coming together now. That's what I meant when I say functional food is evolving from body right. to brain health to mental health. And this is the major trend that we're going to continue to see flourish moving forward. What are the biggest opportunities and challenges you feel are facing the industry? We're still seeing a lot of younger brands that are struggling to fundraise. That affects minority founders, founders who don't necessarily start with privilege and advantages in terms of having that friends and family round. I would say that's one of the challenges. Crowdfunding phase is very interesting. We see the boom of crowdfunding this year and shifting from very early stage, like ideation stage brands to like even growth stage brands who are desperate in need of funds to scale their products. The opportunity is for brands to extend that and look at people around you instead of reading too much into other successful entrepreneurs' playbook, because those playbooks have been played. Those playbooks have been implemented. So carving out a niche sweet spot for yourself and really know what kind of consumers that you're targeting is very important. So putting yourself in a consumer perspective rather than being subject matter expert, thinking that I've known the industry for so long, so I can go in and tell other people what to eat. Ask yourself, ask your relatives, ask your friends whether you think this is a good idea when you're about to launch a product. It's very important. Douglas, last question. What should founders be focusing on right now? Great question. I would say profitability, humble growth, healthy, positive cash flow instead of any hype-driven factors, whether it's social media, whether it's a one-time influencer, making sure you get the fundamental correct. That's a great point. Thank you again for joining us. This has been a very informative discussion. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes our interview with Douglas Yu from Forbes. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes of Consumer Rundown Podcast and visit us at ConsumerRundown.com. See you next time.